For those of you online, for those of you sitting here, please share the stream. 10-second evangelism that'll get you through the week. All right, obviously I'm not Pastor Kevin. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, Pastor Kevin, Pastor Sherry are off uh, in Europe this week with Alejandro Arias doing some pastor's conference and some missions work. So you're stuck with me for this weekend, next week. Our topic today is going to be discovering biblical manhood and what that really means. So we're going to do this by looking at a couple of different examples, uh, both in the temporal and society and then biblical. So in American society today, we're kind of backwards in a lot of things, right? I mean, it seems like we're regressing uh, rather than progressing toward uh, perfection. We're, we're kind of moving back. And as such, you know, we're going to take a, a quick look at, at what society thinks a man should be um, and some archetypes that you'll see. And then we're going to take a look at what the Bible says. So the first thing, you know, when you... When society is looking around, they, they want to categorize everybody, right? So who's the, who's the most powerful, right? Who's the, who's the leader? That's the alpha category, right? There's six of these archetypes. We're only going to look at three of them, but the first one is the alpha. The alpha is the guy in charge, right? It's a powerful, usually charismatic, um, inspirational individual who's at the top of the social hierarchy. That's why they're considered the alpha, right? That's the pinnacle. Um, they face challenges head on. They are determined. They're a natural leader as much as one can be a natural leader. But they know their weaknesses. Uh, they may not project their weaknesses, but they know their weaknesses. They're generally honest people. And by that, I mean they'll tell you exactly what time it is and give it to you straight. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're honest in their dealings, right? We all know some examples of uh, bad alphas out there, I'm sure. Um, they're assertive, they're usually a good communicator, and they're good at saying no. Some of us have a problem with that. <clears throat> but they're willing to strive to get better and fight. And fight is usually something that they enjoy, right? They enjoy that exchange, they enjoy uh, getting into a topic and, and fighting over their point of view and for their own good. So a couple of examples of this that we see in society. Number one in the entertainment industry is Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa is Aquaman. If you guys aren't familiar with the name, you know, he's, he's very fit. Uh, he's a good picture of a man. He doesn't take roles that don't fit him, right? For the most part, when you look at the roles that he's had over the years, they're roles that fit him well. He doesn't He's not a comedic actor. He's not starring in comedies. He's not super dramatic. He's more action-oriented, and that's where he stays. He stays in his lane. He understands what's good for him and what makes him money, and he doesn't go outside of that. He's not afraid to share his opinion. Um, during interviews, which he does a lot of, you'll see he's very willing to put himself out there and put his belief out there. These are traits of an alpha. Another one that a lot of people don't really like is Donald Trump. Donald Trump is also an alpha. He will tell you what time it is any time of day, according to his opinion, right? He speaks up, he fights, he moves. Doesn't make him the greatest person, but he's a picture of an alpha. In fiction, one, a, a great example of this is Bruce Wayne. More so Batman, really, than Bruce Wayne, right? Bruce Wayne is this kind of billionaire playboy image that's out there doing whatever, and it's more of a, a free-for-all. Bruce Wayne is the alpha himself, excuse me, Batman is the alpha, the true alpha in that persona. He's the one that's going out and fighting injustice. He's the one that's standing up for others. Both will tell you what time it is and give you uh, the down low and the truth, but Batman is, is his real image. Bruce Wayne is the mask. In scripture, who do we see here? I think Peter is a great example of this, right? Peter's a fisherman. He's a very physical guy. He has no problem giving you his opinion. He tries to lead from the outset. As soon as they start to form a group, he wants to be in charge, like right behind Jesus, right, as the number two set to take over if anything happens to Jesus. Like that's where he is. Now Jesus slaps him around a little bit every once in a while. He's like, hey, you need to calm down. It's not your time yet, right? But don't worry. You're going to be important, 
That's why he named him Peter, the rock, right? Okay, well, later on, once Jesus is gone, Peter ascends into that leadership position, and you see that throughout Scripture. These are all alphas. Now, granted, Peter is biblical, and the rest are kind of in society, but it's an example. Another one is the beta, right? Generally, what you hear in, in the outside world is you hear about the alphas, and you hear about the betas, and what you hear most of the time is neither good. The alphas are usually crass, uh, strong, opinionated, overbearing, any number of other adjectives that you want to add to that type of people, right? The beta is usually the weak, meek, mild, trod upon, you know, person. That's not really true. When you look at it, they're just quiet and introverted. They generally prefer to follow rather than lead. They make a great number two, right? When you think of um, some of the various companies out there, if you look at the second in command, oftentimes they're a beta. And their whole existence in that world is to help the alpha along and aid them in everything that they do. Some other attributes of the beta, uh, they avoid conflict a lot. They're often indecisive and friendly to a fault. And sometimes that is really bad for them because they don't pursue the girl. They tend to take a single rejection and that's it. And then they move on if they move on. Um, They don't continue to pursue like the alpha does. One good thing about them is oftentimes they're the peacemaker and negotiator. When you look back at history and you look at some of the best pieces of statesmanship and negotiation that have happened, over the last several centuries, most of those men would be classified as betas, right? Because they're willing to give and take. Alphas are not willing to give and take most of the time. It's my way or the highway, whereas the beta is like, well, let's talk about this and maybe we can have a little bit of trade-off, right? 80% of what you want is better than zero. So they're willing to take those, uh, those hits. They value teamwork over their own work. An example of this in American culture is Mark Zuckerberg. You wouldn't think about it being a Fortune 500 CEO, founder of Facebook. You would think, if you just read about this guy and you had no knowledge of who he was, that this guy's got to be an alpha. He's on top of his game. He leads one of the biggest social media companies in the world, in Facebook and Meta. Yet, if you meet him, he's super meek and mild. He's, he's not really driven like that. Yeah, he wants to succeed, but that's not. he's not so driven to succeed that everything else falls away, like with a lot of the alphas. I had the opportunity to attend a uh, speech that he was giving a few years ago, and it was quite eye-opening. I had never really heard anything from him other than maybe a little bit of congressional testimony. So I was a little surprised to realize that he had no idea how to play a crowd. Um, Being a social media giant, you would think he would at least have some people skills they weren't really present. It was so flat and uh, unassuming that we, at one point I thought I was going to fall asleep. I mean, this is a crowd of 10,000 people that he's talking to. And it just stuck with me for a long time. I would, never would have expected that. Uh, another one, Neil Patrick Harris, right? Doogie Hauser, Or if you watched uh, How I Met Your Mother, Barney. Right? He's a very unassuming guy. He's kind of Low, meek, doesn't really do a lot as far as leading man stuff. A good actor, um, good singer, does a lot in those areas, but he's not a leading man. He's not wanting to get out there and be the number one. He's happy to be a supporting actor. From fiction, Chandler from Friends, right? Think about him. He's kind of a dope, right? He's a little kind of here or there. He doesn't really make decisions. He lets other people make decisions for him. Um, he's not out there as a leader. He, he's a beta. Okay? An example of this in Scripture is probably Moses. You wouldn't think about Moses being a beta at the beginning, right? right? Because you know, he's leading this huge group of people, and they're, they're escaping from Egypt, and they're running across the Sinai, and and all of this craziness. They even have a few different battles here and there. You don't really think about him as a beta, except when you go back to the beginning. When he first encounters God, and God's like, hey, listen, this is what I want you to do. 
I want you to lead these people out of Egypt. And he's like, what? Uh, no. Okay, he's totally reluctant. He talks about how he's not a good speaker. You know, he can't, he can't confront Pharaoh. He can't do this. He can't do that. And bless you. And finally, the negotiator comes in and he starts negotiating with God, right? And he strikes a deal. And God's like, all right, fine. I don't know if he just wore him down or what. That's how I feel in a negotiation. And he's like, all right, all right, all right. You lead, Aaron speaks. Your brother will do all the speaking for you, who's more of an alpha. But I don't want an alpha here because I don't want a king, right? That's why God chooses Moses over some of the others, because he doesn't want somebody who's going to assume kingship. Aaron, you can see it later in the scripture when you read through it, he would have assumed kingship, given the opportunity. When he and his sister, you know, confront Moses as he comes back, there's definitely a challenge for leadership there. And God comes in and bang, you know, fixes that problem right away. But Moses is not that guy. He's not the alpha. He's not out there like that. He's a reluctant leader. <clears throat> the third one that we're going to talk about is called Sigma. Many of you probably haven't heard of this. It's not really talked about that often. It's out there, but a Sigma man is kind of outside of the social hierarchy. They don't really play the game. They don't want to be involved in that. They're neither an introvert nor an extrovert. You know, the, the alpha is almost an extreme extrovert and the beta is almost an extreme introvert and the sigma is somewhere in between, right? They like being out there every once in a while with their, with their pals and having that, but they, they need their alone time to consolidate themselves. So because of that, they're generally seen as like a lone wolf. They're confident without being cocky, unlike a lot of the alphas, right? They're comfortable with who they are and independent, secure in their masculinity, not afraid to take risks, whereas like the beta is almost totally averse to risk and the alpha is all risk. They're usually intelligent and well-spoken, able to stand up for themselves and others, and they're respectful of women, which is almost, it's almost the same thing with the alpha and the beta again. The alpha a lot of times is somewhat disrespectful and the beta is almost overly respectful to the point where they're friend-zoned right away. So the sigma's kind of somewhere in that middle ground. Examples of this that we see in film, Clint Eastwood. You wouldn't think of it, right, because he's a leading man a lot of times, especially in his heyday when his 40s and 50s, when he's playing Dirty Harry, when he's playing uh, The Man With No Name, you know, and he's doing all these spaghetti westerns. And you think of that, you're like, okay, cool. But do you see him doing a lot of interviews? No. Do you see him trying to get publicity wherever he can? No. Even in his heyday, that wasn't the case. He made some great investments on his own, bought a lot of property. If you didn't know the Monterey Bay area in California, he owns a lot of property in the Carmel area. It's very expensive. So he's done some really good things to help increase his wealth and his family, but he's not out there in the limelight. Another one is Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves has starred in at least two franchises that I can think of off the top of my head, Matrix and John Wick. But he's not out there. He, do, he does interviews, but he doesn't do like a big press circuit, right? Red carpet events, you almost never see him. Where do you see photos of him? On the subway in New York, right? And when somebody comes up and talks to him, he's totally willing to just sit down and have a conversation. These are Sigma traits, right? They're out there, they're doing these great things, but they don't want to be in the limelight when they don't have to be. Leonardo da Vinci is a historical example of this. <clears throat> if you look at him and you compare him and Michelangelo, Michelangelo is like a prima donna, right? He's gotta be out there, he's gotta have press, he's gotta have all this uh, affirmation, specifically by the popes at the time, right? Because they're funding him. And then da Vinci, the only time you see him come out of his cave is when he needs to find somebody to sit for a portrait or he needs money. Otherwise, he's just in there drawing, right? making up new inventions and things like that. He's not really an out there type of person. In the Bible, what do we see? What, what's an example of this? Caleb. Okay, Caleb is one of the 12 spies that goes in, along with Joshua, goes into the, the promised land when they reach, <clears throat> excuse me, when they come out of Egypt. He and Joshua are the only ones that come back with a positive uh, review, right? Hey, we can do this. We're good to go. He's willing to take those risks. 
Let's go, let's do it. They get overruled. Well, 40 years later, everybody else has died. He's about 80 years old now, they figure, when they get ready to go into the promised land. This is the second time you really see him. And suddenly, it comes time to hand out uh, the inheritance of the land. And Caleb pushes himself at 80 years old, pushes himself to the front of the line. Moses hands him his map, you know, with, hey, this is where you're going. It's Hebron. What's the first thing he does? He turns around, he assembles an army, and he goes and he attacks Hebron at 80 years old, at the head of an army. I don't know about you, but I don't think I could do that at 80. So he's there when he has to be, and he's pushing through, and he's leading when he needs to, but when he doesn't have to do that, he doesn't. He's content to sit back and let others take the glory while he maintains what he's doing. So those are some examples within society and how it relates uh, to some biblical characters. But what does the Bible say? Well, let's look at a couple of examples in the Bible. Some traits that are necessary, you know, off the top of my head. They have to be godly. They have to be repentant. And they have to be service-oriented. We'll get into why that is shortly. But who is that? Okay, so we have David. David is, is those things. Not all the time. You know, let's face it, he has a few bumps and hiccups here, but he's that. Uh, Peter, okay, Abraham, Paul, Boaz, and at the beginning of his reign, Solomon, right? Now, all these men have flaws, right? Which is why they have to be repentant. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example, doesn't have to be repentant because obviously he has nothing to repent for. But those are the examples of the good. What are the examples of the bad and traits of the bad? The traits of the bad are selfish, ungodly, and self-serving. Me, 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 me. Well, who is that? Who's the first one that comes to mind? Cain, right? Cain's the first one to really defy God after the fall. Ahab, Haman, Abimelech. Abimelech, so bad, right? His dad is Gideon. So Gideon... Uh, in the early period of the Judges, right? In, in chapter 4, he goes through, wins some great victories for Israel. Well, he has a bunch of kids. And once Gideon dies, they're kind of vying for power. There's no king in Israel at this point. So they're just trying, kind of vying for local power at Shechem. And Abimelech decides that he wants to be the guy in charge. So what does he do? What's the first thing he does to consolidate power? He kills 70 of his brothers. Straight off the bat, 70. Bad dude. Now, of course, we have Herod. Everybody knows about that one. And Nero, the emperor towards the, uh, the end of the book of Revelation. So these are all bad examples that we see. So let's look at those attributes that we talked about. The attributes of a biblical man... First thing is, he looks to Jesus as his example. Doesn't look to anybody else. The others have periods of being a good example, but Jesus is the ultimate example. So we're going to take the vast majority of our uh, cues from Jesus. The biblical man acts out of love, kindness, and compassion. And we see this mirrored in Jesus when he meets the leper. Right? So in Matthew chapter 8... A leper comes up to Jesus after he's come out of the mountain and he, says, he kneels before him and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So Jesus reaches out his hand, touches him and says, I'm willing. Boop. And the guy's healed. Doesn't take a lot of effort, right? To show love, kindness and compassion. But he can do it like that. Because he's trained himself to be kind, compassionate and loving. Another example of this is the woman with the issue of blood in Luke chapter 8, right? So for 12 years, she's suffered from bleeding. Jesus is on his way to uh, check out the daughter of one of the members of the local synagogue to make sure that she's okay. They're going through a narrow section of roadway, right? <coughs> Excuse me. And they have people pressing in from all sides. So this, this woman is trying to figure out how she can get Jesus' attention and get him to heal her because she's given up all hope. Nobody can help her. 
It's been 12 years she's been dealing with this. And in that society, it's really bad. You know, Pastor Kevin talked about this a few weeks ago and how bad that is. You know, she's considered unclean for the entire time. She basically cannot take part in society at all. She manages to get her way up there and simply touches the hem of his garment. And what does Jesus say? He yells, who touched me? And Peter just kind of looks at him. He's like, man, I don't know. Look around you. You got people coming in from all sides. What do you mean, who touched you? So then Jesus says, no, no, no. Someone touched me. I know the power has gone out of me. And then the woman, seeing that there's no way that she can get out of this without, you know, being noticed, she comes forward and she says, um, you know, it was me. She explains the situation. She explains that she was healed immediately. And what, what does Jesus say to her? He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He's so full of compassion, so full of kindness, and so full of love that he doesn't have to turn it on for it to come out of him, for it to exude from him, right? That's where we as men need to strive to be. And it's hard for us. Ladies, if you don't know that, it's hard for us to be like that. We have to flip a switch most of the time, right? Because we're in work mode or we're in play mode or we're in competition mode and we're trying to do these things and then it's like, oh, okay, I have to actually, you know, think about, about this and, okay, I need to be kind in this situation, right? For most of us, it doesn't come naturally. We have to go through some process. This process that we're going to talk about today will help with that. A biblical man is gentle when the situation calls for it. Doesn't always call for it, but some situations call for it, okay? And that's one thing that we have to learn. I know out of the gate, for me, I've learned this over the years. 22 years of marriage helps. You know, a couple of kids helps. Um, but before all that, no, there was, there, gentleness was not a thing. Didn't really exist in my life. It, it wasn't necessary, especially in the Army. It's all hard, 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 move, move, move. That's all it is. So when the situation calls for it, so here we go. Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly of heart. When you think about it, it's like, okay, that's kind of boastful, isn't it? But then you look at it, and he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. What he's saying is, let's exchange our burdens, right? I'll take yours, and you take mine. Mine's easy, right? I've got you. I'll take yours. It's not a big deal. I can handle plenty more. That gentleness in dealing with us can transfer to us dealing with others. Another example of that is when the adulterous woman comes up. Okay, this is in John chapter 8. Pastor Kevin talked about this one a while back too. So, a little background, you know. There's a, there's a, lot, a lot of stuff going back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus at this point. He's kind of ruffling some feathers in the local religious community, right? Because he's not doing things their way, exactly the way that they say it should be done. Pharisaic Judaism has become a thing after the return from Babylon. And it's all rule, rule, rule. Not just the, the law, but it's additional things on top of the law. So Jesus comes in. He's ruffling all this. They're trying to trap him. The, the Pharisees and the teachers, right? So they bring this woman who they say they caught in the very act of adultery. Never mind the fact that there's no dude there. It's just her. So they bring her in and they're like, hey, Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? What does he do? He kind of steps back for a second, doesn't say much. He looks at him and he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he just kind of stoops down and starts writing in the sand with his finger. That's all it says. doesn't say what he's writing. A lot of people think maybe he's writing some of their sins down. I don't know what he's writing. I just know that he's doing something in the sand. He spends a minute or two doing that, and he looks up, and they're all gone except her. So what does he say to her? <clears throat> he says, woman, where are they now? Has no one condemned you? She replies, no, sir. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't berate her. He doesn't dress her down in front of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't yell at them. 
He just handles the situation with grace and gentleness, and he says, you know what? Okay. You think you're perfect? Let's see. Gives him a second to think about it. And then when they realize that not only do they know their own sins, but the community is tight enough that the other guys there probably know their sins too. So maybe this isn't such a good idea. And then he looks at her and he's like, hey, listen. You know what you did wrong, right? Don't do it again. It's that simple. The situation doesn't always call for that. But in this situation, it did. He knew when to be gentle and when not to be gentle. The biblical man forgives without harboring resentment. Immediately following the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, the, the very next thing that happens is he turns to the, to the, excuse me, he turns to the disciples and he starts talking about forgiveness. And so what Jesus says is, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will, for, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others uh, their sins, your Father will not forgive you yours. He's letting them know. He's trying to get through to them, right? Because a lot of them are like me. They're a little hard-headed sometimes. You've got you to gotta drill it down and say, hey, listen, genius. If you don't do this, you're not going to get it from the Father. It's, it's a give and take. It's not just, oh, I got to do this, and I can, oh, forgive me, I'm good. No, you have to practice that as well. And if you don't, the same grace will not be extended to you. In order for us to receive forgiveness for the things that we've done, we have to be willing to forgive others. Beyond the spiritual and, and uh, eternal consequences of that are the temporal consequences of unforgiveness. According to a recent article published by Johns Hopkins Medicine, studies have shown that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health. Lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, reducing pain, blood pressure, and the levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. And research also suggests an increase in forgiveness health connection as you age. So as you age, it becomes even more important that you learn how to forgive. Because when you harbor unforgiveness in you, it rots away at you, right? It pollutes you from the inside. And that's what you manifest on the outside. The biblical man is willing to use strong words and violence when necessary. Anytime you talk about Jesus and violence, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Flipping tables, right? That's what everybody wants to remind you of every once in a while. You know, when everybody says, hey, what would Jesus do? One of those possibilities is flipping tables and whipping people. Um, personally, I enjoy that, that portion. It, I think sometimes it's not used enough. <clears throat> but, you know, that's me. So what ha why, but why is this happening? So Jesus is coming into the temple, and he sees that we have a group of people selling substandard sacrificial implements, right? And then over here, we have people that are changing money. It's the ancient world, so they got money from all over the place happening, right? And you got to change everything into temple shekels. So over here, they're using dishonest weights and measures to conduct that exchange. So people are being cheated, right? This enrages him for good reason, right? This is what's called righteous indignation or righteous anger. So he then takes this, he thinks about it, because if you read it verbatim, he goes over and he braids a whip, which takes, I mean, I don't know how fast he was at braiding, but it's going to take at least 30 seconds to a minute, you know, to braid a whip, even if it's just a couple of cords. Then he acts. He starts whipping them, flipping over tables, and he talks about how, you know, it's written that my house will be a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Anger is okay in the right circumstance. But you cannot be so full of anger and hate that that's all that spews from you. When you're angry, you have to take that to the Holy Spirit, take that to Jesus and say, hey, listen, why is this happening? I had a lot of anger issues a while back, stemming from my time in the Army and uh, my deployments, right? PTSD does that. It's, that's how it manifests so oftentimes. It took me several years of working through that 
to get to the point where my initial reaction to almost everything is not zero to 100 anger, okay? Those are things that we have to work through. And as men, we have to understand that and we have to go to the Holy Spirit and go to Jesus and say, hey, listen, I don't know what to do with this. You gotta help me. Because if you don't, it's gonna ruin your relationships and it's gonna ruin your life. It's no fun for anybody and nobody wants to be around that. Another time is when Jesus calls out the Pharisees. This is the strong word portion. All of Matthew chapter 23, literally the entire chapter is Jesus dressing down the local Pharisees and pointing out their hypocrisy and calling them hypocrites. The entire chapter. It's, it's somewhat comical after a while because it's a repetitive of, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, and he's pointing out everything, right? So, towards the end in verse 33, he calls them snakes. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers. Now for us, we're like, okay. So what, what's the implication here? Because we don't understand how this comes out in, in the context of the ancient world at the time, right? <clears throat> so snakes, okay, yeah. So the guys, you know, a little slimy maybe, slithery, kind of creepy. Okay, a brood of vipers, to call someone a, a, a viper or a brood of vipers at the time is to say that they're full of poison, right? They lash out and they target people. What happens in a society where those are your leaders, right? It poisons the entire, uh, the entire sector, the entire section of society that they're influencing. It's okay to use strong words in the right context. Again, it's righteous indignation. You have to understand that those are Holy Spirit-driven moments. That is not your norm. If that's your norm, you need to, you need to seek... Uh, some help from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the righteous man also has a knowledge of Scripture. It doesn't mean you have to be a PhD theologian in any way, right? You don't have to be, you know, a pastor. You don't have to be a televangelist, any of those things. What it means is that you spend time in the Word and you understand what's happening. And there are various reasons. So let's break those down. First off, Jesus memorized Scripture. Now, a lot of times you'll hear somebody say, oh, well, you know, he's God, he knows everything anyway. That's true and not true at the same time. Um, when Jesus is here as man, he's fully man, so he still has to learn things, right? One of those things, and we see that displayed in the story of Jesus at the temple around the age of 12, right? When his parents somehow leave him there at the temple. I'm not sure how that happened. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, you know, he's there and he's displaying his knowledge, and it says that he's growing, He's growing in knowledge and wisdom. Well, here, when, when he goes into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, and Satan tempts him, he tempts him three times. Each time, Jesus answers very similarly. In verse... <coughs> excuse me. In verse 4, he answers Satan. He says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second time he tempts him, he answers again. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And the third time, he finally, he's finally done with it. He's had enough. And he says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil leaves, and then the angels come and minister to him. Okay? He's using the word of God, scripture, as a defense right? It can also be used for offensive purposes, but in this case, he's using it as a defense, right? Devil tempts, he rebuts. We're also called to memorize scripture. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Doesn't mean pass through us. You know, a lot of you know I've stated it before. I'm an auditory learner. So I listen to a lot of things. I listen to the Bible a lot unless I'm doing a very deep study. So oftentimes it's when I'm making breakfast in the morning. I have my headphones in and I'm listening to it. It doesn't mean it goes from this headphone to this headphone and then it dissipates and it's gone. You actually have to put that inside yourself. You have to take those moments that you get and dwell on them and meditate on them and make them a part of you. The way that happens is through repetition. 
It doesn't happen. You don't hear something once and remember it forever unless you have a perfectly eidetic memory, which most of us do not. So it takes repetition again and again and again. Scripture is also a sword, right? Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. It, but it's, it can be used as an offensive weapon against the enemy. So take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God can be used offensively when you know that something's going to happen. I've used this analogy before. I'll use it again. If I know that I'm going into a meeting at work that's going to be contentious, which happens way more than I really like it to, the first thing I do is put on some worship music, some specific songs, and then I dive in to very specific scriptures that help me with this. And I'm, I get myself set so I'm ready when I go in. It's an offensive tactic, so I'm already in the mode when I go in there, and I don't have to put myself in the mode. This happens probably every couple of weeks. It's so much that it's almost annoying. But you get used to it. It helps. It, it calms you down before you go in, and it's a good tactic. Memorizing Scripture also helps against temptation. In Psalm 119, the psalmist talks about I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, repetition, right? You don't have to memorize the entire Bible. You don't have to memorize chapters, you know, from one end to the other. Memorize key things. If the Holy Spirit highlights it to you, it's probably a good idea to take that one and maybe put it on your list. And as you, go, as you grow in the word and as you grow in your study, you will memorize more and more and more. A biblical man has a life of self-sacrifice. Okay, so what does that mean? So, first thing is, you're not there to serve yourself, right? Especially not first. You're there to serve Jesus. Jesus is number one. Your relationship with God comes before anything else. It comes before your wife, if you have one, girlfriend, whatever. It comes before your kids, if you have them. It comes before your relationship with your parents, your job, or the church. Okay? That is paramount. Your relationship with Jesus is paramount. Nothing should come between you and that relationship. And if it does, then you need to think about removing that or addressing it. At the very least, address it. If it's a habit or something that comes between you and Jesus, then you need to re probably remove that. Okay, in Romans chapter 12, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that God's will is His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That relationship, that act of worship, comes before everything. A biblical man leads his home for the benefit of his wife and children. If you are not married, which is some... You are leading yourself. You are still responsible for what you do. It is possible for you with nobody else to lead yourself. It sounds kind of weird, but it's, it's possible. You can do it. It takes a little bit more work because oftentimes you're your worst enemy, right? And you've got to remind yourself that that's not the way things work. In leading the home for the benefit of your wife and children in that order, which we have a hard time with oftentimes in America. We worship the children a lot here in, in the States. And the sad reality is, is that oftentimes relationships uh, between spouses are sacrificed because of the children. The children are not the primary. The relationship with your spouse is primary. So in Matthew chapter 20, Verse 26, Yet it shall not be among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Your first priority, Jesus. Your second priority is your family, wife, then children. In that order. You are to serve them, not them serve you. We'll get into that here in a minute too. But one of your responsibilities is to lead that family. 
A biblical man controls his emotions and passions. This also, you know, in, in keeping them under control, also means developing them because some of us aren't naturally uh, emotional people, right? I've been accused many times of having no emotion whatsoever, um, which I find funny, but, you know, maybe it's just me. Uh, my wife doesn't understand it either because she's been stuck with me for 24 years, 22 married, and then some before that. So, you know, she's been around for a little while. But some other people don't, don't get it because what they see is the business side of me. They don't see the fun, you know, other side of me. So when we're doing this, controlling our emotions is also developing those emotions. And in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, verse 22 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these, there is no law. What's that mean? That means you can have them in as abundant an amount as you want. Sometimes more than what you want. Um, which is a little scary for me, being an emotionless person. right? But we have to develop these things. We can ask for these things. A lot of us, outside of the Holy Spirit, don't have these things and it's not a part of us right the joy patience who who here is patient no liars today that's good okay so i don't know anybody that has more patience than they actually need i know a lot of people who have more kindness than they probably need um and it gets them in trouble sometimes uh but you know patience is not one of those things and i think we can all use some more of that so the biblical man provides for his family. Now there's a caveat here that we need to talk about. It doesn't mean that if he's not providing for his family, he's completely failing. And here's why. If you have some sort of accident, right? So before I joined the army, I was a carpenter. Um, if I had had an accident there like I had when I was in the army, I broke my pelvis while I was in the army. Um, but if I had been a carpenter at that time, I would have been completely out of work, wouldn't have been able to support my family and would have had no insurance. Fortunately, because of where I was at the time, I had medical care, I was still getting a paycheck, it wasn't a problem, even during the rehab portion. Okay, so there are times when you don't necessarily have to be the sole provider. In today's society, living in Miami, if you're doing it on one income, I applaud you, because this place is crazy. If you're living in San Francisco, or Houston, or New York. I don't know how you're doing it either, because those places are worse. So it doesn't mean that you have to be the sole breadwinner, or even make the most. I have, I have a friend at work. Uh, he's there for the benefits. He provides the benefits for the family. His wife is a very successful realtor, does very well for herself. Um, but she has no medical coverage, there's no life insurance through that. There's nothing. It's just the income. So as a pair, they work together and they partner together. He works in, in a very stable job that provides uh, a stable income and has great benefits. She works in a rather unstable market, right? But does well. They work together, codependent, right? An apostolic team, you could call it where they actually work together. It's about teamwork. So in 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially their own household, has denied their faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Providing does not necessarily mean making a ton of money. It means just making sure that things are taken care of. And that can be done through a network as well, which is why the church, especially in the first century, is so close-knit, because if there's an issue the others can help. It doesn't mean that you rely on them for eternity. It means that there's a hiccup here. They need some help. Let's help them out. Benevolence is what it's called. Back and forth. And it works in a cycle. The biblical man serves and leads his family. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. We'll get back to that in a second. I know what all the ladies are thinking. Husbands should love your wives. 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Again, this is a codependent relationship. When it says that she should submit to her husband, it, that's not slave, right? That's not bow at my feet, kiss my feet when I come home from work, anything like that. It's not, you know, even a dinner on the table at five, you know. It's not that. It's a codependent relationship because there's two things. There's two dependent clauses here. The one is that the wife should do this and submit to the husband. And what that means is that submit to his leadership, not necessarily to his every whim. And if you have any time in a relationship, you know that the probability of that happening anyway is zero. Or there might be like 0.1, right? It's just that's not the way that we're made. That's not the way that women are made, right? Society has driven things that way, and that's wrong. For the husbands, it says to love your wives. Why? Because we have a hard time with that. We're commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. To love someone is not an emotion, the way that they're talking here, right? This is where English falls flat, right? The Greek is much better at this. This is talking about loving them as an act of service. It's an action. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion, right? We have to love them by doing what? Providing a safe environment for them, protecting them, standing up for them when, that, when the time comes. That's what we have to do to love, just as Christ loved the church. So becoming a man, how does this work? Okay, so one of the things that I get asked all the time is what can a woman do to help their kids, to help their sons, right? Things like that. Um, or help their man, their husband. Well, there's a couple different things. First thing is, when a boy, when a, when a, when a boy is, is brought into the world, right? The mother gives birth. Who's the first person that is going to teach that boy? The mother, right? She's his first teacher. She's his first pretty much everything. She's his first love. She's his first teacher. She's his first... Um, uh, Bible instructor, usually the one that leads, especially in a Christian home, usually the one that leads the boy to, to Jesus is the mom, oftentimes. Not all the time, but oftentimes. She sets the foundation for everything that's going to happen with that boy. That's why the mother is so important in this. And your job as a mother is to help him on his way, to guide him. It's not to make him a man because it's not going to happen. You can't make him a man. Only another man can make him a man. Your job is to set that boy up for success. <clears throat> You're laying that foundation so that when he moves on, he's solid. You have an opportunity like no one else to shape them. And that's your entire duty until they move on to the next stage is to give them knowledge of Scripture Show them who Jesus is, why he loves them, what he's done for them, and what, excuse me, what he's going to do for them in the future. Women, you are the chief encourager in a man's life. If you're not there to encourage him, it's much more difficult. You also have the ability to tear him down. But that's not your job. Your job is to encourage, Right? Do everything you can to, to be his cheerleader and speak into his life and push him forward and make him better. Men, they're not nagging you, right? They're trying to make you better. They see potential in you that you can't see. Listen to them. Oftentimes, women are the voice of the Holy Spirit. You hear Kevin say it about, about, about Sherry all the time, but oftentimes, women are, are more the voice of the Holy Spirit. They're, they mirror your mother, your relationship with your mother mirrors your relationship with the Holy Spirit most of the time. Your initial impressions of what the Holy Spirit is going to be like is based on your, your contact with your mother. They speak into your life. You have to let them do that. Okay? Sometimes we don't want that. I understand that. I've been there. I'm still there sometimes. Right? My wife is very good about being gentle about it and being like, hey, maybe you should think about this. And I'm like, no, that's all right. And then she kicks me. No, you need to think about this. Okay, 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 I'll look at it. We had that conversation last night. Um, 
Ladies, you need to talk with your man about what God has done for you in your life. Because if he's done it for you, he can do it for him. You need to show him that it's possible. And the way you do that is through your own testimony. Like I said before, a woman can't instill manhood. But the role of the woman in a man's life is extremely significant. The tongue has the power of life and death. You have the power to shape him in ways that nobody else can. The relationship that you have and the ability to speak to him is a, almost a superpower in the way that you're able to maneuver him and show him who God wants him to be because you probably see it way before he does. Learning to walk in manhood. So a boy or a man, if he really wants to become a biblical man, he really wants to enter into manhood, because we have man boys in society, right? We all know them. They look like Chris Hemsworth a lot of times. Long hair, great accent, lots of muscles, no substance, right? And I guess that's okay if that's where you want to be in society and in life, but that's not where most of us want to be, especially if we're here in church, right? We want to go somewhere else. We want to go farther. So what do you need to do? You need to get a mentor. If you've already surpassed this, then you're already past this stage in life, you need to become a mentor to another man or boy and show them what it is that God has in store for them. The Holy Spirit can do it, but like, like Pastor said here, you know, uh, earlier, um, but it's a lot harder that way, right? It's going to be a lot harder on you. You're going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit a lot. But if you can find other men to help you and mentor you, and it's not just one. It's not like, oh man, I found this mentor, it's great, it's going to be this way for life. No, it's a series, right? You learn different things from different people. Find yourself a mentor or several. Most of the time this looks like an older guy, right, who's been through life. Maybe it's a younger guy if they've got a lot of life experience and they've been around, right? But oftentimes it's an older guy, a, a sage or a, a gray hair. Some of us go gray prematurely, so you might want to think about who you talk to. But the, the analogy that I like to use for this is the same as the trades, right? When, when a boy or, or a young man is entering the stage, they're an apprentice. They come in. They don't really know anything about the trade. They don't know anything about manhood. All they know is what they see on TV, and it's beer and girls and beer and girls for the most part, right? And, and they don't really understand. They're apprenticing, so you have to teach them. They, they have to have somebody to come in and show them what to do and how this works and move them forward. And eventually they'll reach a stage where they become secure in, in, their, in their manhood and their, and their biblical manhood, and then they've reached what we call the journeyman stage, right? They can go off on their own a little bit. They don't need so much supervision. They can complete some tasks. They have a pretty good idea what they're doing. And it takes a long time of that phase before they become a master. In the apprentice phase and even in the journeyman phase, master phase two, there's going to be defeats. There's going to be times where you fail, and that's okay. That's how you learn. But don't fail to the extent that you can't get back up. You have to be able to rely on the Holy Spirit. And there'll be times when you don't want to and you make a mistake, and then you have to come kind of, you know, downtrodden back and be like, you know, I, I screwed up and... Maybe it's time to start this again. And that's okay. It happens. Every, it happens to everybody. If you look at some of those examples that we gave from earlier, like David, you can see it, it happened royally on several occasions. But it was brought to his attention. He understood it. He corrected himself and he moved on. Initiation. One of the things that has to take place for manhood, for a boy to become a man, and for a secular man to become a biblical man is some form of initiation. If you look at cultures around the, around the world, you see a couple different forms of this. One of those is in the Jewish culture, right? You have a bar mitzvah. It's about the age of 12. Personally, I think that's a little young to be called a man, especially today, when 18-year-olds and 25-year-olds are making such stupid decisions. But maybe there's a rare one out there. Okay, so you have the bar mitzvah. 
It's a huge party that happens. Congratulations, you're a man. Go forth, do great things. Oh, you got to go back to seventh grade, like Chuck pointed out. Um, in the Australian culture, the Aboriginal folks there had a thing called, or I still do, have a thing called the walkabout, which is essentially a, a test of survival skills, right? They're sent out into the wilderness for a period of time. If they come back, great. You're now a man. If you don't, well, I guess, I guess you don't. Okay. Several cultures, you, you see a lot of military-type cult, type cultures. Sparta, for example, had something similar to this. You had to go out and kill a specific wild beast you know, to be considered eligible for the army. And then you had to go through all the craziness associated with that. Um, for me, it came in a few different... Um, well, we'll get to that in a minute. So the purpose of these initiations or ceremonies is a declaration to others that this boy has, has been received into the company of men. In our case, as biblical men, it's that we've been received into the company of biblical men, right? There's all these tears that we, that we go through in life, these stages, right? So for David, I would say that this happened when he slew Goliath. He goes out there with his sling, woo, takes this guy's head off, and the next thing that happens is he's just enveloped into the army as a part of Saul's entourage, right? He's taken from his boyhood realm of sheep and sheep and then taken into the army. And now suddenly you're a warrior at roughly the age of 16. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, okay? The affirmation of manhood can only come from an initiated man. It cannot come from anybody else. It doesn't matter what that guy's been through. It doesn't matter what he's seen, where he's traveled, how many waves he's surfed. If he has not been initiated by other men, he can't initiate you. And if you haven't, then you can't initiate anyone else. This takes place in, in various forms. One of, one of the ceremonies that I was able to participate in um, you know, we have these various milestones in our life. This one, uh, I joined the army as an infantryman, right? That's the, the guys up front with little guns that kill people and break things. And uh, at the end of basic training for us, we had a 30-mile road march. Um, 30 miles doesn't sound that long until you do it, and then your feet revolt, right? Because 30 miles, I don't care who you are, 30 miles is 30 miles. When you do it in boots like that, with all that crap on your back, and then you got to complete tasks along the way and it takes literally 24 hours, forget it. It's, it's a nightmare. But at the end of this, we get to this hill, which is not something that you want to see at the end. You're hoping for a downhill. You see this uphill. We have to climb up this hill. I swear it was like this. And at the top, you see a light, a ring of fire. It's just torches going up. This is called the turning blue ceremony. So we get up to the top. There's a whole company of us, so there's probably somewhere around 130 of us. We get up there. The drill sergeants are all up there. They have their, their cords. This is an army thing. They have their, their cords and their discs, right, all blue. We have a formation. They congratulate us for finishing. You're still standing at this point, so you finish. That's pretty much the, the point of decision, right? If, you're, if you can still stand at this point, then you've finished, and you're good. And we're all exhausted, and they bring us up there, they give us our, our cross rifles, they give us our cords, we go through that whole ceremony, and at the end, everybody basically just collapses. But it's one of those things that now we've been initiated by guys who've been initiated into this club. So here we are, we're coming into this. And artillerymen can't do that. A, a pack clerk, a supply clerk can't do that. It has to be an infantryman. And the same is true for other branches. The analogy works for us too. If I haven't been initiated, I can't initiate my son. I can't initiate any of you. If I haven't gone through that, I can't do that for you. Does that make sense? Okay. So calling forth the biblical man. Every man who has accepted Jesus has a calling upon their life and a destiny. You may not realize it, but it's really two parts that we're going to break it down to. And the first of those is sonship. In Galatians chapter 4, 
It says, but when the set time had come fully, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba Father or Daddy or Papa. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, you are made God's heir. You have to understand sonship and step into that. If you don't, you can't move forward. It's one of the key things that you're called into. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You must be led by the Spirit. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. No, rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. These two passages mirror each other. Right? They're saying the same thing in a slightly different way. Sonship is of the utmost importance. If you do not grasp that, you will not move forward. The second portion is the miracle worker slash evangelist. This is what I'm calling it. In Mark chapter 16, this is the Great Commission. You see it again in Matthew chapter 28. It's worded slightly different, but we'll only read the, uh, the Mark version. So Mark chapter 16, verse 15 he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. All these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink the deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on the sick and they will get well. This is the miracle worker. This is the evangelist. And it doesn't mean that you've got to be Benny Hinn running around, slaying 500 people, you know, with a wave of the hand from 100 yards. No. The guy on the street, your coworker, your sister, whoever. It does, it's, it's the whosoever. It's not saying that you have to go out and be some great thing. You can do this on your own. You can, not on your own. You can do it with the Spirit, but you can do it on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be some big, huge ministry. So where do we go from here? So if you don't have one already, you need to find a mentor. You need to pray to find that mentor. If you've already surpassed this and you are in biblical manhood, then you need to pray for someone to mentor. They're not going to get there without help. There's a lot of boys out there. There's a lot of young men out there without a father figure. We'll get into this a little bit more next week. But you need to be there and mentor them. It doesn't mean you've got to hold their hand for the rest of their life. It just means that you need to be there for the season that you've been called to be there. You need to set up a time every day that you can spend with God. Doesn't have to be three hours long. I know a lot of people say, oh, you need to do it in the morning. Sometimes it doesn't work that way, right? You work that out with the Spirit. You work that out with Jesus. I'm not going to tell you that you got to do this, you got to do that. But you need to do something. We've got a ton of classes that we do here at Elevate. If you've been here for more than a day, I'm sure you've heard you know, five, six, seven different classes come through in the last several months. We're running classes right now for ministry training. We're running classes uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we have a bunch of sign-ups over there. Sign up for stuff. Learn. It's okay to be a dude and be in church and learn. It's okay. You can be a man and do those things. There's a whole segment of society that thinks otherwise, but they're wrong. Plug in with the home groups. We don't have home groups right now because we just broke for the, the summer, right? But in the fall, when school starts again, we'll start up the cell groups or the home groups again. Get involved in one of those. Actually, Daisy and Rudy are right there. They run one. Um, I've never been to theirs, but I've heard great things from everybody that goes there. If you can be involved in it, get involved in it. It's just another way for you 
to connect with people, to connect with other Christians, and to connect with other men. Which brings me to Men of Valor. If you are not connected with Men of Valor, there's a sign-up sheet over there, and you can get in on our text group, which is fairly active. Okay, We have a, an event coming up on the 15th of July. I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe we're going to go throw axes. I haven't decided yet. What do you think, Chuck? Should we go throw axes? Axes. Go throw an axe. Sure? You're going to be the target? All right. <laughs> okay. We try to do some fun stuff. We try to uh, help and build each other up. The, the reality is that Men of Valor is there for us to mentor each other, right? To become that group. We're going to do something um, towards the end of the year uh, to help with that initiation process for men. Get involved. Come out. It's fun. You'll enjoy yourself. There's usually a lot of meat. Sorry, Greg. Okay, so let's pray. If you haven't ever accepted Jesus, but uh, something has stirred in you today and you want to do that, for those of you online, we're going to say a prayer here and, and you can repeat it at home, uh, whether you're watching this live or you're watching this recorded in the future. Okay, so let's start that. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, all that I give to you, all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. All right, let me give you a couple blessings. Father, I call forth the spirit of biblical manhood upon the men today. Reveal to them their destiny as men of God in the church and in society today. Bless their willingness to rely upon you and partner with the Holy Spirit. In the days to come, draw them to you in a way that they have never known. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so next week we've got Father's Day. Thank you. We've got Father's Day next week. There's going to be some, some gifts and stuff. It's going to be a good message. We're going to do some impartation. Um, bring, bring, your mother, or bring your father, bring your brother, bring your uncle, whatever. Uh, get them out here. Let's show them what God is, who God is and, and give them a good impartation. So let me bless you before you leave. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine down upon you and give you peace. Thank you. Have a good day. Can you imagine it?